Hello, how are you? So, like Kyle said, thank you all so much for coming. Um, this is not one of those really fun talks to come to. Um, you know, it's not enlightening. You're not going to run out the door being like, woo, I learned something so exciting. Like, let's go. Um, grief is something that's really challenging to talk about, to walk through, and to learn about. So um, I just want to say thank you to everybody for being here tonight. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of heads up of what to expect tonight. So if you came tonight with the intention of getting kind of a how-to or a prescriptive plan, to walk next to somebody, to heal them, to fix them as they're grieving, you're going to be really disappointed. That's, that's not what this is at all. Grief is a really complicated, messy, unpredictable kind of thing. And so today is really about trying to explain some of what people um, who are grieving, some of the things that they experience, some of the things that they, are, that they walk through. So you can understand the nature of what grief is, and so that you can see that some things that look very scary, very intense, are actually very normal, healthy reactions to grief, to try to give you a little bit of space to show up and to be next to them. So one of the things that you're not going to hear is anything about stages of grief. Okay? We're not going to try to organize this process. We're not going to try to make it neat. We're not going to say, oh, do these five steps and you're done. That's not actually grief. Okay? So ideally, today you're not going to hear, ideally, much of anything that you could just go to Barnes & Noble and pick up in any grief book and read. I want to teach you something that's, that's different, that doesn't try to make grief easy. Um, so I want to try to help you all float alongside of those who are grieving. People who are grieving, they're in the midst of a shipwreck, and they feel like they're drowning. And I'm going to give you a metaphor um, in a couple of slides to kind of help um, liven that up a little bit for you. I want you to be able to get in with them, feel the waves with them, and be with them, and learn how to tolerate being next to somebody who is truly in a lot of pain. Um, if anybody is here who is grieving right now, first I want to say thank you for coming. It is absolutely a risk to show up to a talk like this when you're grieving. So thank you for taking that risk. My hope for you is that through this talk that you will see that a lot of your reactions and your experiences, while they are very intense, they are very normal, they are very healthy reactions, and I hope by the end you'll be able to find more compassion and more grace for yourself. I do want to let you all know that this talk tonight is reserved for really significant and profound grief. So there are absolutely different levels and intensities of grief reactions. Today we're going to focus on those really, really significant and severe ones. So not every single person that you meet who's walking through grief will have all of these things going on, um, but I wanted to focus on kind of the most intense level so you know what to expect when that happens. Okay, so what is grief? Good old internet gives us definitions, right? So dictionary.com definition of grief. Keen mental suffering or distress over affliction or loss. It is sharp sorrow. It is painful regret. Okay? Grief is not just reserved for death. Grief can show up with any type of loss that we have. It can be loss of a job. It can be loss of functioning, loss of health, Loss of hopes for what might have been and what could have been and what you always dreamed that your life would be like it can be secondary to loss of relationships. It can come from trauma. Okay, so grief, a lot of times in our culture, we think 
Only somebody that has experienced the loss of a loved one has gone through grief. That's not the case. We can grieve many things. Okay? Grief is also not a task to complete. Okay? It is not something that you just put your time in with, waiting, oh, has it been six months? Has it been a year? Has it been two years? Perfect. I am done with that. Grief is an ongoing journey. Okay? It is also not a problem that we need to solve. It is not pathological. It is a healthy, normal reaction to loss. Okay? Grief and love are counterparts. The more that we love someone, the more that we love ourselves, the more that we're excited and hopeful for our life, the counterpart to that is grief. When we have a loss that's associated with that love, the grief shows up and the grief, the intensity of the grief goes up based on the intensity of that love. Okay? So just like we would never tell somebody, well, don't love another person, right? Don't love or care about yourself. It doesn't make sense when we say, okay, well, just get over your grief. Just be done with it, right? That's not how love works. So that's also not how grief works, okay? So that's the lovelydictionary.com definition. But I want to give you a more real-life example. So um, I have used this example before, and I have never found a better description of what grief is than this example that I found on the internet. There was a young man, that's just how they describe him, a young man, and he had experienced a loss of a loved one. And so he kind of put it out there on a message board, and he said, somebody tell me how I do this. Tell me how I can survive this. I don't know what to do. I can't do this. And so he got this lovely response from this older man. There was no name associated with it, but this older man who had been through loss, wrote to this young man about loss. So we're going to start with the first part of what this older man said, and then towards the end of the talk, we'll get to the rest of his story. But this is how he described grief. As for grief, you'll find it comes in waves. When the ship is first wrecked, you're drowning, with wreckage all around you. Everything floating around you reminds you of the beauty and the magnificence of the ship that was and is no more. And all you can do is float. You find some piece of the wreckage, and you hang on for a while. Maybe it's some physical thing. Maybe it's a happy memory or a photograph. Maybe it's a person who's also floating. For a while, all you can do is float and stay alive. In the beginning, the waves are 100 feet tall, and they crash over you without mercy. They come 10 seconds apart, and they don't even give you time to catch your breath. All you can do is hang on and float. This is what early grief looks like. Trying to catch a breath and trying to stay afloat as wave after wave after wave comes at you. Early grief, when we're talking about significant and and profound loss, early grief can be at least a year. In our culture right now, we give people, what, three days for bereavement leave? If somebody who you love passes away, if you're experiencing a significant grief, we expect people to get through the grief process so quickly. It is not a quick process. This is what early grief is like. It's survival for a period of time. And it lasts a long time for some people. So how do we show up for somebody who's just floating in that wreckage? How do we do that? Okay. One of the first things that we need to talk about before we even get into grief itself is we have to talk about our relationship with unpleasant emotions in general. 
Okay? Our culture does not like unpleasant emotions. We have names for them. We call them negative. We call them bad, right? We don't have negative or bad emotions. We have unpleasant and pleasant emotions, okay? But one thing that I find so fascinating is that if we look at these six core universal human emotions, these emotions, they cross all cultures, right? We as human beings are designed to have them and they show up in infancy. We see them in babies already. They're written into our DNA. Those six emotions are anger, fear, sadness, disgust, surprise, and joy. And usually anytime I tell people about these six universal emotions, I usually get a specific statement from them. Anybody know what that might be? Why are most of them negative, right? Four and a half out of the six are what we call negative, right? I give surprise a half because sometimes it's an okay thing, sometimes it's not, right? So we are designed with primarily unpleasant emotions, right? Because they're adaptive, they're healthy, we need them, right? Anger tells us when something is unjust, when something is unfair, when somebody is trying to harm us or the people we love. It prompts us to protect, okay? It prompts us to correct wrongs. Sadness shows up when we have lost something important to us. It teaches us what we value. It teaches us what we love and what we care about, okay? Fear tells us that there's danger, okay? It prompts us to get away from danger. It keeps us safe. Disgust tells us this might make me sick. Pull away, right? Surprise, it says, I don't know what's coming. It's activating. It gets us ready, okay? So we're prepared to respond. Joy, I like this, right? That's what it tells us. I like this, and it prompts us to open up and connect to people. That's how we build community. That's how we build relationships and that social support. So we spend in this culture right now, we're taking these core human emotions and we're saying, I don't like those. Those are unpleasant. They're bad. Get rid of them. I'm a psychologist by trade, so I cannot tell you how many times people come into my office and they say, my goal for therapy is to be happy. And I say, oh, no, wrong place. We're not doing that. That's actually pathological to be happy all the time. We're not going in that direction. Okay. Part of what we need to do is we need to learn to show up and tolerate and listen to some of the unpleasant emotions. We don't have to be controlled by them. We don't have to feed them, but they serve a purpose and they're healthy and adaptive. And when we reject them and when we push them away, that's where we see a lot of problems. Okay. So when we're talking about things like substance use, excuse me, substance use, isolation, avoidance, self-harm, suicide at the most extreme, other risky kinds of behaviors. That's in the service of trying to avoid something that is actually a normal and healthy part of our existence. So if you are somebody that struggles to let unpleasant emotions be, somebody comes up to you, right, and they say, I'm sad, and your gut response is, don't be sad about that, it's okay, Right? That might tell you, whew, I need to work on learning to actually tolerate some of these experiences that are healthy and normal. Because when you are showing up with somebody who is grieving, those emotions are now times a thousand. And if we can't tolerate them on this low level, how are we going to show up and be supportive for somebody who is devastated and brokenhearted, legitimately so, and we can't change that in them? We need to learn how to make space for those and not try to fix or get rid of them. Okay. Here's one other thing that I want to tell you, um, just kind of 
about our culture in general because it absolutely impacts how we show up for people who are grieving. And it is something called the just world belief. And unless you are in the mental health field or have heard me talk before, you have probably never heard of it, but I can almost guarantee you that this belief is very, very, very prevalent in your life. Okay? So the just, the just world belief, sorry, excuse me, I adjust my hair too much, okay? In its most simplified form, is basically good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If I do the right thing, something good will happen. If I do the wrong thing, something bad will happen. So sitting here, a lot of you are probably like, I don't believe in that. That's flawed logic. No, absolutely not. I'm going to challenge you on that because in this culture, that belief is ingrained in us from the time we understand language. Okay? We have teachers, we have parents, we have clergy that are unintentionally ingraining that in us, right? When you were in school, did you have a teacher that said, if you cheat on this test, I might not know and you might get an A? No. You had a teacher say, if you cheat on this test, what? You fail. I will know, I will catch you, and you will fail, right? Nobody's parent said, oh, if you steal that cookie, I won't find out. You just got a sweet deal, right? No, I'll know. Don't do that. We have a culture that tells us if you just work hard enough, everything good will work out. It'll be fine. Good things will come to you. That's the just world belief. And so that is ingrained in us as a rule, right? And so then we experience trauma. We experience loss. And we're like, what do we, what do, we do with that, right? And here's the natural response that we do, right? I use this example with people. If you find out that someone that you know was in a bad car accident, okay? The first question I hope you ask is, are they okay? What's the next question that comes to mind? And you guys can throw it out if you want to. Whose fault? Was somebody speeding? Were they texting? Were they distracted, right? Were they reckless? If they weren't, was the other person? That's the just world belief. Who did something wrong to cause the bad thing to happen? It is automatic, Right? And so when we have somebody who is grieving and who has experienced a profound loss, this is their automatic reaction, that just world belief. And they're stuck with this loss. And what they're trying to do is force that loss into that belief that structures their world. Because it makes our world really predictable, and that's what we know. So the way that they do that is by owning it themselves. That's my fault. If only I didn't let them go to college. If only I ate kale for the last four years, then I wouldn't get cancer. If only I did this or didn't do that. I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. I should have known. And that type of belief wreaks havoc on that person who is grieving. Okay? That person who's grieving needs a safe place to speak that and to process that. Okay? It is leading to a ton of guilt for them, and it can absolutely get them stuck. What happens, though, is when people come to us and they say, this is my fault, our immediate reaction is, you're crazy. No, it's not. It couldn't be. And we immediately dismiss that. And what that person feels is rejection and invalidation. And they say, now you're not safe. I can't talk to you about this. I can't tell anybody about this. So I'm going to keep it inside and it's going to eat me alive because nobody can handle this truth that I think is my reality. So they need some place to be able to say that. When thoughts remain in our head, our automatic assumption is that they're true. Okay? So I do this with people again all day long. 
we speak thoughts or we write them down. Why? Because when you speak them or when you write them down, you can actually evaluate them objectively. It shifts things when you say something out loud to somebody. So we need to be able to provide a safe place for somebody who is experiencing some of that guilt and some of that self-blame to say it and to let it be and to show up and to let them start to process through that. Okay, If that person is very, very, very stuck in that self-blame and that guilt, that's actually one place where therapy can be a really good thing. I work with people all the time to work on getting them unstuck from some of that, but sometimes just saying it out loud to somebody who is trusting and not rejecting of it, that's enough to do it. Okay. The other way that the just world belief kicks in is that you're the supporter. You have it. Okay? So you see this person who you care about experiencing this profound loss. That shakes your, your world too. How did this happen? I don't know if I can go through this. I don't know if I would survive what they're going through right now. Why did it happen? And you have those exact same questions showing up in your own mind. That's okay. That's normal to try to figure out why did this happen? How did it work? How do I get my sense of predictability and control back? It's normal for that to be the case. You can't do that with the person who is grieving, okay? You can find your own support someplace else and maybe have an opportunity to work through that there, but those are questions and thoughts that those can't be brought in to that relationship with that person who is in those early stages of grieving. It also is really hard for us to be okay with that lack of control, Okay, grief in general and showing up to support somebody who's grieving, you have very little control in both situations and we don't like that as human beings, right? We want to trust that if we're using, you know, if we're using that car metaphor, we want to trust that I put my seatbelt on so I'm going to be safe. Your seatbelt really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're going to be safe on that car ride, right? It is a safety feature, but it doesn't protect you from any potential harm that might show up. So living in a world where I can do everything right and something bad can happen anyways, that's a scary world to live in, and that's the reality of our world. So if that's something that you're struggling with, again, we don't want to bring that into the relationship with the person who's grieving. You want to bring that to a different relationship to work through some of that. Okay. So when people are grieving, okay, you have the loss of the person, the loss of the hope, the loss of, the, of health, the loss of functioning, Whatever that loss is, is one thing. And then you also have this loss of identity, okay? We define ourselves by our roles, right? So I put in kind of some of my roles. Mother, daughter, wife, worker, caretaker, sister, friend, athlete. I used to be not anymore, but that's up there still, okay? We define ourselves by these roles. And when you lose something important, that role now shifts, So you're stuck with this question, if I am not that, who am I now? Do I want to be this person? Who am I to you? Do you want to be with me? Do you want to be in this relationship with me? If our relationship was built on this person being our connector and this person is gone, what is our relationship? If our relationship was built on 
exercise, something as simple as that, meeting at the gym and exercising four days a week. And I've lost my health and I can't do that. What, what kind of interaction do we have? Who am I to you? Who am I in that relationship? So we see people who are grieving. We see them trying to interact with people who they love and they care about. And now they've got a secondary loss on top of their loss. Because not only have, do they have that original loss, but now I've lost me. And each time they try to interact with you as somebody who they care about and love, I've got that loss again. So it becomes this identity crisis. And so even very simple, easy interactions might actually be really, really anxiety-provoking for that person. And it may be too much for them to have to confront another loss. So you may see people who are grieving say, nope, I'm going to step back. I'm not going to go spend time with you. I'm going to cancel on our plans. I'm not going to do that because they don't have the space to do that. You might see them actually trying to start building new relationships with people who they didn't know at all before. Why? They don't have that identity crisis in that relationship. They didn't know me then. I'm just me now. So when I see them, I still have my loss and I still have my grief, but I don't have that secondary loss of identity on top of that. So if you see people pulling away, know that that might not be you. You don't have to force them, right, to come back to that relationship with you, but being ready and available for when they feel safe is a really good thing. Okay. Okay. So kind of tied to that loss of identity, okay, we see the sense of safety being shaken when somebody is grieving, okay? So this kind of goes with that last piece that I was talking about with their identity, right? Who, <clears throat> interacting with other people, who am I in this relationship? Will this person still accept me if I am different? What if I can't be that person who I was before? Because I can't, right? Will they reject me? Do they want to be with me? I've already had this loss. I don't know that I can handle another loss. I don't feel safe in these relationships that used to just be really easy and really safe. I don't know how to do this right now because of the loss and because of my, my, my issues with understanding who I am now, okay? What we also see is in grief, we see really uncontrolled, strong, powerful emotions. That can be really scary. Grief is a scary thing to go through because these emotions are unpredictable and they are powerful and they are overwhelming and they show up at times that you don't expect them and that wave comes and crashes over you and you don't know when you're going to come up for that next breath of air and you come up for that next breath of air and you don't know if you have 30 seconds, if you have two minutes or if you have a day until the next wave comes. So there is this constant sense of, I am not safe. I'm not safe with other people. I'm not safe inside myself, okay? And so what we see is that we see people are wanting to try to avoid some of these emotions. They're wanting to try to get a break. So what we see, sometimes they take too much medicine. Sometimes they sleep for two days. Sometimes they use too much alcohol. Sometimes they do things like that. And I'm actually here to tell you, which is kind of an interesting thing for a psychologist to stand up here and say, is that those things can be okay. If they're done in small doses and for short periods of time, understand that that person is just looking for a break. Wave after wave after wave is coming at them, 
And so sometimes they're seeking a break. We don't want to over-pathologize some of those actions, especially early in grief. Just understand that that person is trying to survive. Give them a little grace and know breaks are okay for a period of time. Okay? The other thing that we see is this, sometimes there's this big tendency to try to over-control the environment. Okay? So I see this frequently, not just with grief, but with lots of different conditions. When our insides, when our emotions feel chaotic, when they feel unpredictable, okay, what we try to do is say, well, this is unpredictable. This doesn't feel very safe. So I'm going to try to structure my environment to make me feel safe. So I'm going to organize things just so. I'm going to have a plan of action. I'm going to say, this is exactly how my environment needs to be so that I can feel safe. External structure makes up for internal chaos. So if you are supporting somebody who is grieving and they ask you strange questions, what time exactly will you be here? Who is going to be there? When can we leave? I need to know exactly when that time is over. I need to, to be at this place. I want to drive, not you. Let's go here. Let's not go there. That's okay. All right. It's okay to allow them to have a little bit of control in that environment. They need some place where they feel safety and predictability and control. Again, that doesn't have to go on for the rest of their lives, but in these early stages of grief, it's a really, that's an okay thing for them to, to want and to look for that control. All right. Then we've got the issue of trust. Okay. So loved ones are often unintentionally hurt those who are grieving. Okay? I hear that over and over and over with people who come into my office who are grieving, that the people I love the most have no idea how to support me, and they say things that are so hurtful, and they don't mean it, but they don't get my grief, and they can't show up for me. So they either ignore me, or they tell me it'll be fine, time will heal all wounds, things like that. And they end up being really hurtful. So what happens is when people are experiencing profound loss, they're saying, I don't know that I can trust anybody with what is actually going on inside my heart or inside my head. Because all I get is people standing on the shore looking at me, sputtering after I come up from a wave, and they say, that's okay, there's not really a wave there, you're fine. And that person who's grieving said, I just got my world rocked and I don't know if I can even breathe. And you're saying it's okay, it's not okay. So it's hard for people to trust that you can hold on to their emotions and that you even have space to maybe pop in the water with them and sit with them for a little bit, okay? Another question that people who are grieving have is that, can I trust that I won't lose this next relationship, this next hope, this next job, right? I trusted before. I don't want to trust that again. I don't even know if I want to start or initiate the next thing because if I'm going to lose it anyways, well, forget it, right? I can't trust that it will be here for me. And their faith might be shaken because of the loss, right? Their trust in God might be shaken, Okay. What I tell people frequently is you don't have to defend God. He is capable of that on his own. Okay. He is intimately acquainted with grief. He understands suffering. Your job is to show up with that person who is questioning faith, questioning God, angry, and to just say, I hear you. I will listen. 
right? You don't have to say, no, 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 no. God is good. Trust me, right? No, it's, you don't have to do that. Let that relationship with God do the healing. Let their faith do the work over time. Again, you just want to show up and be present because when you fight that battle, for God, what you do is you're actually starting to push people away and you're telling them again, what they're experiencing is unacceptable and that's not okay. And so what they're going to do is internalize that again and they're going to lose their support. Okay. So intimacy as well. We see this being an issue in grief. So when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about a deep, strong, emotional bond and connection, right? And so we have two issues that come up for people who are grieving. Intimacy with self, that emotional connection to myself, and then that emotional connection to other people, okay? And so please forgive me, there's a couple of typos on this slide. But what we see is that when we see people trying to disconnect and pull away from their emotions, what can happen is that can lead to a fundamental disconnection from the self, Grief changes people. Likes and dislikes shift. Things that you used to think were important, you don't think are important anymore, right? Things that you used to enjoy, you may say, that's silly. Why did I do that? That's pointless. And you might not enjoy those anymore. But what happens is that we have this distancing from the emotional part. We also have this phenomenon that we see in people who are grieving, which is kind of an intense dislike for themselves, They say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to have this loss. I don't want to be this person. I don't like this person that I am. I want to go back. Take me back where I was before. And so we see people saying, this is me. And there's not the desire to understand who they are right now because they don't like who they are. They're suffering right now. So all of that energy is focused back here on who they were which means that they stay disconnected from this person here because I'm just trying to go back. The reality is, is you can't, you can't go back. You're here. You don't have to stay here. We can look at how do we move forward? How do we continue walking this grief journey to move forward? But as long as that desire is consistently to go back, that person's going to be disconnected from who they are. And they're going to struggle to know even, how do I take care of myself? How do I soothe myself? What is comforting to me? Because I don't quite yet know who I am. And that can also make it hard to build connections with other people, to be really, really emotionally close to another person because I'm not fully settled in who I am, but also it's risky to be emotionally connected to you, right? So if I just experience this deep, profound, significant loss, I don't want to have another one. I don't know if I can survive another one. I'm still just trying to pull myself out of that water and take a breath before the next wave comes. I can't have five more waves coming at me. So you know what? It's probably a little bit safer if I stay disconnected from you. I don't want to pull too close. I don't want to build a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship because that is frightening. I don't want to lose another one of those. So I'm going to stay away, right? And it's more of that pulling back. Less about you as a supporter, more about how they are. So again, we're not looking to push, but we are looking to show up in safe ways. And if you feel like, hey, this relationship has kind of gotten a little superficial recently, 
that's okay. That's probably the kind of relationship that feels safe for that person right now. And over time, as they continue with that grief journey, you can work on kind of building more of that intimacy when it's less threatening for them. Okay. So how do we do this? How do we walk alongside of somebody who is grieving? Number one, it is never about making a person feel better. It is about jumping in that water with them, sitting next to them or floating next to them and letting that wave come over you with them and popping up and sputtering with them and being with them, right? It is not your job to make that person feel better. And any attempt that you do to try to make them feel better is not going to work. And I'll tell you why in a minute, okay? But it's about just being next to them. It's about understanding that joy and pain, they can occur simultaneously. You don't have to get rid of one to experience the other. One of the things that I think we're confused about in, in, kind of, um, in our culture right now is we think that sadness and happiness are on this lovely continuum, right? Sadness is on one end, happiness is over here. And so the only path to happiness or joy is to move further away from sadness. That's the only way we can get it. That's absolutely incorrect. Okay? Happiness is its, own, is its own phenomenon. Sadness is its own. Each emotion is separate from every other one. So you can feel joy and profound sadness at the same time. You don't have to get rid of one. You can allow that pain or that sadness to be and make space for joy when it shows up. You can create a life that is rich and meaningful and full of laughter and joy and have it feel incredibly empty at the same time. They coexist. Part of what we need to learn to tolerate is living in a world where seemingly opposite things can happen at the same time. And we don't have to get rid of one to have the other. We can let them be, okay? The other thing that we want to think about when we're walking alongside of somebody who is grieving is that it's painful for you as a supporter as well, okay? So grief is overwhelming, and when we see somebody that we love suffering and in pain, we suffer too, right? That false sense of control that we have regarding our life because of that lovely just world belief and other things that I'm not going to talk about today— That's shaken for us too. And we look at this person that we love and we see them in so much pain and we say, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know how they woke up today. I don't know how they're getting through this. And we experience a crisis as well. The other thing that happens is that as we experience that crisis and that kind of sense of, whew, this world isn't super controlled, right? We want to run away from that. So how do I make myself feel better? How do I make myself feel in control again? I unintentionally dismiss your pain. Again, it's not on purpose. It's not malicious. But I'm going to give you that word. I'm going to give you that phrase, right? It'll all work out in the end. It will be okay, right? I'm going to give you that little word because I don't know what else to do, and it's going to try to make me feel better in the moment, okay? 
we need to learn to tolerate our own discomfort and our own distress. Okay? It is distressing for you. Having your own support person as you're walking alongside of somebody who's grieving is really important. Okay? <clears throat> so w- one thing that's really important is that it is as bad as that person says it is. People who are grieving, they need to be heard. They need to be seen. If they don't say a word, they still need to be heard. You need to know it is as bad as they say, and you can't fix it, but you can believe that they will survive it. Okay. So at some point... If you're really close to the person who is grieving, at some point, they are going to come to you and they are going to say, fix it, make it better. What do I do? Tell me what to do. Of course, they would ask you this. Don't even try. You can't, right? It's, there's no way that that can work. They're going to want you to do it, Okay. Of course they would. One thing that I see in my office anytime I do grief work is I wait for that session where they say, tell me what to do. Tell me how to make it better. And I look at them and I say, I can't. And they're like, cool, why am I here? Right? This is exactly why I came to you. And I say, you know what? I can help you not add to the pain. I can help ensure that you are walking this journey of grief. I cannot give you anything that's going to take away your pain because your pain is your extension of your love and your care, and we can't take it away. What we're trying to do, excuse me, what we're trying to do is to try to, again, help them walk through it, help them show up, and to trust that grief by nature is healing. Grief is adaptive, and it is a normal response. It is not pathological. It's not problematic. The job of grief is to teach that person how to live in a world where their loved one, their health, their relationship, where that is lost. So it is teaching them, how do I navigate this new world that I don't particularly, particularly want to be in? It has a job to do, and if you try to step in and take that job away, it's going to be really problematic for that person. Okay, They have to walk through it. Grief fundamentally changes somebody. Loss changes somebody. Okay, For you, as the person who is supporting them, that can be really scary. I've known this person for months, for years, for decades, and this is who they, who they are. This is, this is the person I care about. They're different now. Maybe in big ways, maybe in small ways, but they are fundamentally different now. Can you tolerate that? Can you handle your own loss that's associated with that? Are you able to show up next to them saying, oh, wow, you're different. That's okay. How do I adapt how do I make this change and adjust so I can show up for you? Okay? If you are there next to them just waiting out the storm with the expectation that they're going to return right back to who they were, you're going to be really disappointed. Okay? The question is, can you go forward with them? Can you see where they are now and decide to walk that journey forward? And can you love this new person? So, this slide here, oh good, 
I kind of already did that stuff. I didn't click fast enough. I'm sorry. Okay. So this slide here is really important for people who tend to be rescuers or savers or helpers. Okay. So there are some of us, and I would be one of them. That's why I chose to have my career in psychology. Okay. We like to help people. We like to provide solutions to help them, quote-unquote, fix their problems, work through their struggles. Okay? If that is who you are, you need to be really, really cautious as you're supporting somebody who is grieving. Okay? That's a risky, risky place for you to be. Because if you're walking in saying, I'm a saver, I'm a helper, I'm a rescuer, you can't do that. That is harmful for that person. This may be a time, if that's who you are, that may be a time where you need to step back a little bit and say, you know what, I'm going to let some other support people come in right now and support this person where they're at because those people can get in the water with them and just hang on for dear life. And all of my instincts are going to be to try to fix it. Okay, and what happens is when you are trying to walk in and help, you can't be present with their pain. You're on the job. You're working, okay? And what happens is that leads people to give that really unhelpful kind of support. And so usually what I tell people is if you are walking alongside of somebody who is in the early stages of grief and you have an interaction with them. You go out to coffee, you go to their house, you visit with them. If you walk away from that interaction feeling good, you probably blew it. The person who is grieving probably is walking away from that interaction with pretty unpleasant feelings and maybe even hurt from that interaction. There's not a good way to get out of that water if you're truly in the water with those people to get out and feel really good about it. So it can be safer to just kind of step back, if that's who you are, for a little bit of time, okay? Um, For those people who have experienced their own profound loss and their own grief, it can be really tempting to come in and to say, this is how it worked for me. Do this. What we have to remember is that everybody's grief is unique and nobody's doing it wrong, okay? So there are things that work for you, great. Share those. Just don't share with that expectation that this person needs to do that, that this is the right way to do it. There's no right way to grieve, okay? So be there, support, share your experiences, but don't expect somebody to follow along your path. Okay, so some general tips. I've said this many times already, but I'm going to say it again. Be with them. Silence is often better than words. So many people will come to me and say, Carissa, I don't know what to say. What should I tell this person when I go see them? What do I say if I call them? What if I run into them in the grocery store? What do I do? And I just say, show up and be with them. You don't have to speak. Often words get in the way when we're talking about grief. Okay? validate the pain. It is as bad as they say. Yes, you are devastated. I see that. I wish that there was something that I can do to take this pain away, and I know that there is not. I am here. I see it. The pain is intense, and it is raw. Part of what you need to do as a supporter is also know when you need to tap out. 
there may be a time where it becomes too much for you. So you need to know when you need to step away, kind of shore up your reserves and be able to come back in. So you can allow other people to come in in those times so that you can be the type of support that you need. There may be certain parts of grief that trigger you. There may be certain parts that you don't handle as well, certain emotions, certain reactions. It's okay to step away in those moments to say, I'll let somebody else who knows how to do this well come in, and then again, I'll try to step back in. You don't have to be there for all of it if you're not equipped for it. Always ask yourself the question, is this for me or is this for them? Am I saying something to make myself feel better? Am I asking a question to give myself a false sense of control and security? Or am I here for them? Remember, we go back to, if it feels good for you, probably doesn't for them. Okay? So always focus on that person. And hold their words and actions lightly. It's not about you. Don't take offense. They may say things that down the road they don't even remember that they said. They may say things that down the road they may say, oh, I was in a tough spot in that moment. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to do that. Be gentle with them. Have grace and have forgiveness for things that they may be doing um, in that moment that might be hurtful for you. I wouldn't hold anything against them. Okay. Careful, intentional, and practical support. Food, mowing lawns, dishes, laundry, showing up and taking kids to practice, driving kids to school, things like that. Very practical support can be wonderful. Don't wait for that person to ask. They probably need more support than what they are saying. With that, be very careful. So don't kind of bulldoze in and say, this is just what I'm doing today. Step in and say, here's what I would like. Is this something that you want? Allow them to have that control. You might walk in and say, you know what? There's 10 piles of laundry here. I need to do this to help them. You might wash a shirt that they didn't want washed, and it might be the last shirt that smelled like that person who they have lost. You might not want to do that, right? That might become unintentionally harmful. So show up. Here's what I'd like to do. Give that person control and agency. They need that. Run interference for them. When people are going through the early stages of grief, lots of people like to show up and lots of people ask questions and expect things. Maybe you can be that person's go-to. You can screen people for them so they are not forced to interact with people who aren't safe, who don't understand what they're going through, or they're just not the right person for them to be with in that moment. Maybe choose to say, give me that list of people. I'll have them go through Give me your cell phone. I'll text people for you. I'll answer your phone if that's safer for you for a period of time. Okay. Be agenda-free and get rid of expectations. Okay. Don't expect somebody to show up every time that they say that they're going to. Okay. Don't expect them to have fun. Don't expect life to be like what it used to be like. Show up. What happens happens, and that's great, but kind of hold on to your agenda a little bit loosely, okay? Most importantly, love them. If you are walking into any interaction with this person with the thought of how do I love them well in this moment, how do I love them well today, 
you're going to be in a much better place. If you're making choices out of that love, that's a really good place to make choices out of. So we talked a lot about early grief and all of the difficulties associated with early grief. Okay? I don't want to leave you with that as the whole story. Okay? So I want to encourage you that grief is an ongoing journey. While it's incredibly challenging and painful, you don't have to remain stuck in those early stages. Okay? So we're going to go back to that older man that responded to the young man on the internet. And I want to read you the rest of his story because he has a lot to say about the rest of the journey of grief. And here's what he says. So after a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, you'll find the waves are still 100 feet tall, but they come further apart. When they come, they still crash over you and wipe you out. But in between... You can breathe. You can function. You never know what's going to trigger the grief. It might be a song, a picture, a street intersection, the smell of a cup of coffee. It can be just about anything, and the wave comes crashing. But in between waves, there is life. Somewhere down the line, and it's different for everybody, you find that the waves are only 80 feet tall or 50 feet tall. And while they still come, they come further apart, and you can see them coming. An anniversary, a birthday, or Christmas, or landing at O'Hare, you can see it coming for the most part and prepare yourself. And when it washes over you, you know that somehow you will again come out the other side, soaking wet, sputtering, still hanging on to some tiny piece of the wreckage, but you will come out. Take it from an old guy. The waves never stop coming, and somehow you don't really want them to, but you learn that you'll survive them, and other waves will come, and you'll survive them too. And if you're lucky, you'll have lots of scars from lots of loves and lots of shipwrecks. Scars are a testament to life. They're a testament that I can love deeply and live deeply, and be cut, or even gouged, and that I can heal, and continue to live, and continue to love. And the scar tissue is stronger than the original flesh ever was. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are only ugly to people who can't see. So my hope for you all today is that as you join with somebody who is grieving and who is suffering, that you can see the beauty that's in the scars, that you can know that grief is a manifestation of love. It is healthy. It is healing. And I hope that you can learn to make space for the pain as well as the joy, the ugly as well as the pretty, and for the loss of what was and the hope for what is still to come. Thanks so much for coming tonight. I appreciate it.